Hello and welcome to the RCP Medicine Podcast with me, Dr. Amy Burbridge. I'm an acute physician working in Coventry. And I'm Dr. Hussein Bashir. I'm a respiratory registrar in the southeast. Excellent. So today I've got a very interesting case for you. And to everybody who's listening, Hussein knows absolutely nothing about this case. So the answers that he's giving me, it's everything that he would be doing when he's on call as a registrar. Big gulp. Are you ready? So, this is a 20-year-old man who is presenting to the ambulatory care unit with lower back pain radiating to the right iliac fossa. This pain is sharp and then dull and it changes throughout the day. Nothing makes it worse, nothing makes it better. He's also said that there's a little bit of numbness in the right thigh. He's unable to walk to the shops or climb stairs. He's not sleeping very well. His appetite's decreased, but his bowels and bladder are absolutely fine and there's no urinary disturbance. On further questioning, he says that he's a little bit low in mood. His appetite's gone and he's lost about eight kilos in weight. He's got a dry mouth and he's got itchy eyes. Of interest, he's had no trauma to the lower back region. And he's actually already been seen in the emergency department on two previous occasions with similar symptoms of lower back pain and a little bit of numbness in the right thigh. On both occasions, this was thought to be due to constipation and possibly renal stones. So, examination-wise, in fact, actually, before we get to examination, any thoughts? Yeah, um, quite a few, actually. There's um, So the lower back pain to right eye look fossa, um, that's typical of sort of renal colic. You think, yeah, as you said, yes. any have already considered renal stones. The numbness in the right thigh, I would think about, is there some compression of the nerve? Um, so in that region, you're thinking, yeah, maybe has he got an, a psoas abscess or something like that? Very good. Um, he's The reduced appetite losing eight kilograms is concerning. Um, but then if he's got other issues you know if he's low in mood and this is you know obviously debilitating him he's not able to be as mobile as he used to be um that's um interesting to know the age is the thing that gets me thinking you know to 20 year old male it's young isn't it yeah to present with those type of symptoms absolutely um i know we're going to talk about cognitive biases uh, in a later episode but instantly i'm quite bad at stereotyping so okay is there any drug use here has he been injecting veins or something is you know uh, something that's developed from there. Um, the dry mouth and itchy eyes. So I'm not really able to link that with the other symptoms at the moment. Um, and then obviously, yeah, back pain. You've, the red flag is, you know, has he got a mass there or something? But I suppose the fact he's opening his bowels and passing urine is reassuring. Yeah. One thing I didn't ask him, which on reflection I should have done, is his sexual history. Yes. So STIs, um, again, in that loin to groin pain you wonder if that's um, something yeah yeah and on hindsight definitely that's what I'd ask next time so examination wise he's pale and he's thin his temperature is 38.7 degrees however on neurological examination there's nothing of note so although he says that he's numb in the right thigh this isn't reproduced on neurological examination tone is normal powers five out of five sensation is intact On examination of the spine, he has a scoliosis, and this is long-standing. 
His right leg is flexed at the hip because he says it's painful. And when he's weight-bearing, he does find it difficult to walk in the consultation because of the pain in the lower back. His abdomen is tender in the left iliac fossa. Cardiovascular examination is normal and respiratory examination is normal. When I percussed his back, he actually has a tender spot at the L2, L3 region. Any thoughts? Hmm. So I'm thinking is it's something musculoskeletal, so something to do with the joints um, in that area. So yeah, if he's got lumbar tenderness, um, is there, you know, bones rubbing against each other? Is there some inflammation? Um, the the neuro exam is reassuring, so you could probably rule out that there's any significant uh, compression of nerves. Um, and if he's got good power, at least his muscles are functioning as they should do. Um, again, it's, it's one of these conundrums. It's difficult, you know, what is perceived pain because of an actual pathology there and what's, you know, maybe as a result of the things he's going through, is it, um, you know, something cognitive going on here? Um, it could be both. Yes. We don't have to separate them. So you may have two things going on. Absolutely. What would you like to do? Um, so I probably want some imaging. Um, Before the imaging, would you go straight into images back? Um, I would, you would want to do some baseline tests, blood tests from, uh, you know, particularly about the weight loss, you know, look at his kidney function, um, you know, all the standard things, make sure he's not anemic, make sure the inflammatory markers aren't raised. Um, so you'd want to do a CRP, possibly an ESR as well. Um, to see if there is, you know, an inflammatory or, or rheumatoid condition that you can rule out. Um, doesn't sound like there's really infection here. You know, he's not spiking temperatures or fevers. He did have a temperature of 38.7. Okay, so blood cultures then. Um, you'd probably want to do a urine sample as well. Spot urine dipstick, uh, plus or minus then for culture. Take his full sexual history. Um, do any tests relevant to that if it comes up in the history. But yeah, otherwise, I, I would want to do some imaging, you know, at, at least a basic lumbar x-ray, if, okay. that's, if that's where he's tender. And what would you be looking for on the lumbar x-ray? What, what are lumbar x-rays good for telling you? So you mentioned he's got a scoliosis already. Yes. So you want to see what that looks like radiologically. Um, probably not the best thing to look for fractures or anything. And you said there's no trauma. Um, but certainly the curvature of the spine. So both an AP and a lateral film might be helpful. And if there's a vertebral fracture, you would be able to see it, although it's difficult, it's possibly that you'd be able to rule it in or rule it out. Yeah, um, and you can probably, I mean, rightly or wrongly, I probably have an estimate of their discs, intervertebral discs as well. So if it's not consistent throughout the lumbar spine, um, you maybe think, could there be something slit? But although I know the x-ray isn't the best test for that. And certainly the neurological examination doesn't really fit in with sciatica or anything like that. Yeah, so there's a, quite a few conflicting things in the history and the examination. What about this tender left iliac fossa? Yeah, so again, just going to basics and sort of with a, a A&E hat on, you want to rule out, um, you know, any bowel issues, you know, is it a bit of um, colicky pain? Yeah. Um, make sure there's not constipation either. Um I mean, in that region, you've got the descending colon. Um, what about hernias as yes, well? Um, but again, you'd probably pick that up on an abdominal examination. Um, 
similarly the muscles there so you know the psoas muscle on that side it'll mount otherwise okay so imaging wise also let's start with blood tests actually his hemoglobin is 80 his mcv is 80.8 white cell count 6.98 and neutrophils are 4.06 so normal Mm. His CRP is elevated at 109 and his ESR is 67. His creatine kinase is 57. His ferritin is elevated at 212. He has normal calcium, normal alkali phosphatase and normal albumin and total protein levels. His vitamin D levels, B levels are checked and they're normal and his folate level is normal. He also had immunoglobulin levels checked and that was normal. So a few reassuring things there. Um, so doesn't look like myeloma, multiple myeloma. Would you get multiple myeloma to twenty year old? Um, never say never. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, it's unlikely, isn't it? But yeah, um, and I think whenever you're faced with unusual bone pain, you've always got to think bone met um, as well. But um, that serological screen is normal. Um, as per a previous episode, though. Those inflammatory markers, acute phase proteins, are elevated. Yeah. So that makes me think more along, you know, is there an inflammatory condition, arthropathy, rheumatological condition here? So what investigation can you do which is going to really help tell you what is going on in the back? So possibly ultrasound. Okay. Um, in terms of bedside tests, um, obviously you mentioned x-rays. Probably want to get an MRI. Um, that may be able to show if there's any collections of fluids, um, any, any anything to do with the musculoskeletal structures there. Um, if you can't do an MRI and you want to look at the back a little bit closer, what else might you do? Um, in terms of imaging? Yeah. Um, I mean, you could get a CT scan. Yeah. It's probably going to happen quicker um, than an MRI scan. Um, and at least can give you some baseline information about not just musculoskeletal issues, but also the organs around it. So again, if we're thinking about anything to do with a bowel, given that left iliac fossa um, pain, uh, CT might be helpful. Yeah, although it's less good at picking up vertebral problems than an MRI, it still could be useful. Yeah. Okay, and you may want to do a bone scan as well. Yes, yeah. possibly. So these are all things that may help with looking at actually what's going on in the back. So I want from you three possible diagnoses now. And I'm going to see if you guess what's going on. Uh, so based on that information, it's, it's going to be something inflammatory or rheumatological. Um, so we've got back pain, fever... Some random neurological symptoms that come and go. Bit of weight loss. So, let's see. <laughs> what about infections in the spine? Um, so, thinking about abscesses. Yes. Um, I know we've discussed previously about uh, an epidural abscess. Yes. Um, but I'd expect that to have more neurological symptoms. Um, but, yes, um... What about discitis? Yeah. So again, that spiking fever, uh, no obvious causes. Yeah, important to hear. And yeah, we cause back pain. Okay. So we did an MRI scan. 
in this gentleman, and da-da, he had discitis. Also known as vertebral osteomyelitis, spondylodiscitis, or disc space infection. And he actually had a L2, L3 discitis, which nobody was expecting. Yeah. And that would probably account for his fever, his back pain. Because he'd had it for quite a while, and it was chronic, there were some elements of chronic infection with the weight loss, the decreased appetite. And again, probably an element compounding all that, the low mood, is that if you've been unwell for so long, yeah. actually, you start to feel low and get fed up. So it's all as to be expected. Yeah. I think the thing that threw me was that this is someone who obviously is young yes. and may appear systemically well yes. in front of you. Um, it's because I was not really thinking about sepsis or anything like that. Um, but actually now that you, you yeah, explain that back pain, fever, yeah. um, raising, some raised infection markers, yeah, discitis makes sense. It's interesting because we don't expect to see it in a 20-year-old and we don't see discitis very often. Although probably in the last six months, I've seen like three or four cases. And it may be that you've seen it once, and therefore, you've got your hindsight bias. So then you see it again and again and again. And you're more aware of it. Maybe you're more likely to pick it up. But I certainly have seen an increasing number of discitis over the last couple yeah. of years. And the age has, uh, the age has thrown me as well. Because, in, again, in my limited experience, the discitis cases I've seen are in more elderly people or people with existing back issues. So, yes, maybe they've had a previous crush fracture. Um, but also people with previous medical problems. So... Um, are they immunosuppressed? Or do they have some risk factors for developing these infections? Have they had any trauma? But a 20-year-old, you know, otherwise fit and well male with no history of traumas, yeah. It's unusual, isn't it? Yeah. So you're right to say that discitis does increase with age. So it's uncommon in less than 20s, although children do have it. But it does tend to increase in age as you get over the age of 70. Um, so it is uncommon. Um, the most common um, cause of discitis is when an organism enters through hematogenous spread into the disc from another infection. So where might the infection be coming from if it's elsewhere in the body? Um, so in that region, sort of the lumbar region, you'd worry about uro um, urological causes. Absolutely. Uh, again, the sexual history one. Um, is important to focus on. Um, again, looking at the, that previous cervical epidural case we had, so if it's more in the upper spine, yes. um, you think about um, ear, nose and throat. Yeah, absolutely. And you're right to say that I think about nearly half of cases just over of osteomyelitis or discitis are caused by urological spread, which is interesting. And I, um, it may come from skin, soft tissue, endocarditis. Yeah. It can also spread from septic arthritis, bursitis. There's quite a few places that it can actually come from. And you also mentioned that people with other underlying conditions, so diabetes, coronary artery disease, but also malignancy and those on hemodialysis. Because if you're getting frequent hemodialysis, lots of lines used, again, that increases your exposure and also intravenous drug use. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, classically, discitis presents with back pain, 
fever, which is what our gentleman had. Although sometimes if somebody does have back pain, they're taking lots of painkillers, masking the fever. So not everybody who has a discitis will have a fever because of that. So it's just, even if they don't have a fever, you think something's a bit unusual, just have it in the back of your mind that this could be a discitis type picture. The most common region is tends to be the lower region, the lumbar region, and then the thoracic spine, and then higher up is the cervical spine. Um, you do occasionally get neurological impairment, but you don't have to have that for a diagnosis. And often there will be some tenderness in the spine. However, that again doesn't necessarily have to happen. So these are all signs that may occur, but if it doesn't occur, it doesn't mean that this is not discitis. Now, what can happen, and we've talked about it in a previous case, is that if the infection pushes anteriorly, it can cause a paravertebral abscess, and posteriorly, you can get an epidural abscess. And we've got a podcast that we've already talked about that on before, where we've gone through epidural abscesses. And I think that, that just highlights the importance of picking up these types of infection at this stage early yes. before they develop the potential devastating consequences of neurological impairment, which, um, yeah, as you mentioned, if it's thoracic or cervical, can be life-threatening. Absolutely. And in your case, it happened very quickly, didn't it? Yeah, and it, it was, um, yeah, just as complex, but because it's quite quick, you you know, it's, it's a panic situation um, for you and the patient. Um, whereas this chap is has come through ambulatory care. Um, so, yeah, different contexts and environments is... Um, yeah, important to... Absolutely. He had back pain and fever. Any other differentials that you'd want to be thinking about? So you mentioned renal colic. Yep. Um, yeah, again, so any, any, any infection uh, in that region, so abscesses. Yeah. Um, I mentioned already iliosis, abscesses, even standard urinary infections of the bladder. Mm-hmm. Um, yep, renal stones, uh, kidney infections, um particularly if there's a blockage, any hydronef- evidence of hydronephrosis. Yes. Um, bowel pancreatitis? Infe- pan- yeah, yeah, pancreatitis, yeah. basically all the organs in there. Yeah, um, yeah any, any organ. Bowel, bowel infections. Yeah. Um, but then you probably get more history from, you know, there's only history of travel, um, unusual bowel habits, etc. Yes. And again, the non, if they haven't got fever and you're not thinking infection, fractures, which you mentioned, vertebral fractures, arthritis. <laughs> degenerative disc disease, spinal stenosis. So the list is is significantly long, but hopefully the investigations that you're going to do are going to help delineate what it is. So if you're thinking along the lines now of discitis, what specific tests, aside from the blood tests, the CRP, the ESR, which we expect to be raised, what else would you like to do? Um, so you want to find out what organism it is. Excellent. Um, okay. So blood cultures. How many? Yeah, so I, I've always uh, remembered it as similar to looking for endocarditis. So you want, I would say, a minimum of three different culture um, tests. So you've done your blood cultures and anything else? Um, so in this gentleman, you know, why is he getting quite a deep seated infection? I probably want to do an HIV test. Very good. Yes. So you want to be looking to find out whether he's immunosuppressed or not, don't you? Yeah. And you've got your, we've looked at the imaging, we've done an MRI scan, we've seen the discitis. When you've got a blood culture, and if the blood culture is positive, 
what the guidelines suggest. And the guidelines are from the Infectious Diseases Society in America. We don't actually have any UK-based guidelines on the management of vertebral osteomyelitis. However, so this is generated from the American guidelines. And the American guidelines were released in 2015, and they do detail it. However, there may be some differences in how we look at this in the United Kingdom. And always look at your local guidelines because your trust, your local neurosurgical or infectious diseases department may have specific guidelines for the management of discitis. However, for the purpose of this, I will be utilising the American guidelines as they do have a clear evidence base behind them. So as I was saying, when you've got your blood cultures and you're on MRI scan and you've got a positive blood culture, discitis and the symptoms, you then don't need to do any further investigations. So you don't need to do an aspirate of the fluid around the spine if it has been positive before the blood culture. And you don't need to do a bone biopsy unless the patient hasn't responded to antibiotics or you think there's something else going on or there's something a little bit unusual, TB. Yeah. So then you would have to start to think about going and do a biopsy. Yeah, and I suppose some imaging, you know, not necessarily done for these symptoms, but maybe other presentations um sometimes it can look like a metastasis um and actually it's only when they do biopsy that they realize it's an infection um or sometimes a bit of both and i have actually been caught out with a patient who did have an mri scan and we thought it was metastases and we didn't know where the primary was from we went down a really long route and it turned out to be infection so it does happen. Um, and the case with this gentleman is he didn't improve with antibiotics. So that led us then to do, go and do a biopsy of the affected area. That was in an older patient and he had different symptomatology, but absolutely it's always worth thinking about. So you've done your blood culture. What organisms might you expect to see if it's through hematogenous spread? Um, so... Again, if it's lumbar region with this patient, um, I'm going to be thinking about the common things that can cause urinary infections. So E. coli, Klebsiella, also any, you know, hematogenous hematogenous spread. Um, Staph. Yes, Staphylococcus aureus. Yep. Um, Strep. Yes. Um, Again, something endocarditis is Strep Vividans. Yeah, those are the ones I'm thinking at the moment. Yep, and absolutely. Staph aureus and streptococci, some of the commonest. And again, your gram-negative rods, thinking from your urinary tract infection and how they spread. Consider TB. Again, we've discussed if it's a little bit unusual or it, it has classic features of, you know, extra pulmonary TB. They may have pulmonary TB as well. In intravenous drug users, it usually is staph aureus. Yeah. although they may have pseudomonas and possibly candida. In a hemodialysis patient, it's often staph aureus or your coagulase negative staphs, staphylococcuses. Fungal infection is rare, usually in the immunocompromised individuals, individuals with HIV or AIDS, you'd think about fungal infection, a lot more difficult to treat. Yeah. Also, think about brucella. Okay. Obviously, we don't see much brucella in the UK, 
because it tends to come from unpasteurized milk and pasteurized cheese. But in endemic areas, Spain, Greece, Latin America, the Middle East, India, for example, brucella is a lot more common and an increasingly common cause of discitis in these countries is brucellosis. So it's always worth thinking about. So we've looked at how these patients might present. We've looked at the investigations that we're going to do. What about treatment? Yeah, so I was, I was going to ask you actually, because I think any infection in that region, it's quite hard for antibiotics to actually reach um, that area to have an effect. So um, as you mentioned already, look at local guidelines and speak to microbiology about what um, is a potent enough antibiotic. Um, obviously, you would taper it to what bug you've grown in your cultures. Um, but it's usually a long course. It's, you want it, you know, sort of minimum two weeks, if not six weeks. Six weeks, yeah. It's six weeks. It's a long time, isn't it, to be on antibiotics. So absolutely you need to be thinking about um, how that's going to be given over that course of time. So problem with six weeks of intravenous antibiotics is do they need to be in hospital? Because that's a long time. And we know that prolonged hospital stays can cause many problems. Physical problems, loss of mobility, muscle weakness, an element of being institutionalised, getting used to food, loss of confidence. But it can also cause significant psychological impact as well. So you're ill, but also you're in hospital, you're unable to really get outside, do what you normally do. So that's always worth thinking about when you're diagnosing somebody who's young and how you can facilitate the treatment of this, possibly as an outpatient. I mean, you think okay, he's struggling with mobility, but he is still mobile. He's 20-year-olds, can make it to the ambulatory unit. So you'd consider a long line uh, and regular review for the ambulatory unit. Yeah, definitely a long line is, is absolutely a possibility. So you are going to start some antibiotics. You're right, they're probably going to be intravenous antibiotics because they're going to get the best penetration. Again, you, like you said, you need to look at local guidelines for your hospital trust to identify because you will have different types of infection and different causes which will require different antibiotics. You may use flucloxacillin if it's staph aureus based. You may use um, a quinolone, um, obviously, Patients will be antibiotic, sorry, penicillin resistant. Therefore, they won't be able to take flucloxacillin. So you may think about rifampicin, ciprofloxacin. Prolonged courses of ciprofloxacin or keftriaxone can cause clostridium difficile. So obviously, if it's an older patient, you have to be very, very careful about giving prolonged courses of these antibiotics. And often the trust guidelines will suggest antibiotics that will be aware of this and therefore try and utilise antibiotics that decrease the risk of clostridium difficile. So given antibiotics, patients starting to improve, any other tests you might want to do at this point? You've mentioned that you're going to do a HIV test. So on, in that same vein, I'd probably want to look at other causes of immunocompromise, so maybe a hepatitis screen. Yes. Um, you've mentioned you know, unusual things about TB, yeah, make sure he's had a chest x-ray that he's not got another uh, Very source important. of infection. Very important, yes, yeah. Um, 
make sure we check them for endocarditis. So I know you mentioned doing an echo before, but maybe, you know, a lot, some patients who have discitis, it may have come from the endocarditis. So it's always worth thinking about doing an echocardiogram, particularly in patients who are intravenous drug users, who are at a higher risk of developing uh, uh, endocarditis. You must also, as well as your management with antibiotics, think about a holistic approach. So physiotherapy. So make sure that we've got the right team involved, ongoing physiotherapy, ongoing occupational therapy. Also, they may be in a lot of pain. So obviously, when the infection started to be treated, the inflammation will be reduced, but they may require anti-inflammatories as well as other forms of pain relief. So it's important that we get on top of the pain. Some patients who may not respond to pain relief may actually require surgery. So if the discitis progresses, even with antibiotics, the CRP increases, the pain gets worse, the neurology is worsening. They occasionally, if you do have vertebral collapse because of infection or an epidural abscess, you may need to drain the abscess or you may develop cord compression from the vertebral collapse. So this will then require neurosurgical intervention. So it's always worth, whenever I get a patient with discitis, from very early on, I get advice from the neurosurgeons. And on that note, um, so if you've got your confirmed diagnosis of discitis, um, with this case, who was in charge of his care? Was it medicine or surgery? So this was a real debate. Some hospitals where I've worked at orthopaedics have taken over discitis. Some hospitals, it's neurosurgery. Now, in the hospital with this gentleman, we had a good neurosurgical team and they took over the patient. So they admitted him to their ward and they actually did do a CT guided biopsy and drained two mils of fluid, which was clear and didn't grow anything, which is interesting. Now, there is a school of thought that suggests that if the patient is well and not septic, you should wait before you get blood cultures, positivity, or CT results from an aspirate and microbiology before you start antibiotics. But in this case, I started the antibiotics because of his temperature, because he was constitutionally unwell, and I just felt that he couldn't wait any longer. And... You can probably wait up to about a week without that affecting the culture sensitivity results. So we've got a 20-year-old man with discitis. We've treated him with antibiotics. Who's going to follow him up? Yeah, so again, it's you can monitor his improvement with the symptoms. So if he's got less pain, if he's more mobile, if he's regained his appetite, putting on weight, um, mobilising further dif- distances, and that's a good sign. But you probably want some objective evidence as well. Um, so I'm considering a repeat scan um, and then maybe seen in either ambulatory care or if under the care of neurosurgeons and outpatients. So the long-term follow-up really of patients with discitis should be with probably the parent team, so the neurosurgeons probably in this case, they're probably more used to seeing it than an acute physician or a general physician. There is no routine indication for repeat MRI unless it doesn't get any better. And it's known that the changes on MRI can be sustained for a few years of the vertebral involvement. Um, Or you may see complete resolution. So unless there's any specific reason, I probably wouldn't do repeat MRI unless it was really indicated. So our gentleman went home. 
he had his six-week course of antibiotics, some of which he received as an outpatient, and he had our outpatient antibiotic therapy team, which was fantastic for him, made it a lot better so as he could go home and be surrounded by his own things rather than being stuck in hospital. And he had fantastic improvement and made a full recovery. So it was a really interesting case, actually. What are the learning points for you in that case? Yeah, so it's um, really interesting to hear about um, his presentation and particularly with his demographics. You know, he's young, no other medical history. Thinking through that differential diagnosis of symptoms that don't necessarily fit together. You know, so initially it was right iliac fossa pain yeah. um, that brought him in. People going down the route of renal stones, constipation. Um, but also just to show that you can have quite a deep-seated serious infection without appearing typically septic uh, on presentation. So it's, that's certainly food for thought for me. Um, and it's good to know the sort of management, uh, knowing that it is six weeks courses of antibiotics that are required. Um, but obviously now with our expanding multidisciplinary team, uh, investment in community resources is actually possible to have this kind of patient at home. Um, so yeah, really interesting to hear and I'll have to have a look at those American guidelines. Yes, and just a little note of interest. You mentioned that discitis can come from urinary tract infections and it's usually by translocation of bacteria via a venous plexus called Batson's plexus. And that was first described in 1940 by a surgeon at the time, Dr. Batson. So, and that plexus links the bladder with the spine. So it's, that's one thing that I've learned from that is to think about when patients have back pain and a recent UTI, have they had translocation of the infection? But I have to say, I wasn't really thinking about that before. So I've definitely learned something there. Brilliant. Okay, thank you very much. Thanks for bringing that case. Thank you to everybody who's listening. If you want to get in touch with us, contact us at podcasts at rcplondon.ac.uk or you can tweet us at rcplondon. Thanks for listening.